Welcome back to another episode of the Global Surgery Series. I'm Cynthia Choya, and today I'm joined by Dr. Reagan Gilfoyle and Dr. Abdullah Saleh to discuss the ethics of global surgery. This is a really complex topic, and I'm excited to hear both your perspectives. Dr. Gilfoyle is a pediatric plastic surgeon. Her main area of academic interest lies in the ethical delivery of global surgical care, and she has worked to establish a framework for ethics in global surgery. Welcome, Dr. Gilfoyle. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our other guest is Dr. Saleh. He is a pediatric general surgeon, the co-founder and chief executive director of Innovative Canadians for Change, a not-for-profit organization with global programs. His interests include systems thinking, architecture and implementation, technology and development, and entrepreneurship, ethics in global surgery, human rights development, as well as improving access to medical and surgical services to underserved and vulnerable communities. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Saleh. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Well, we'll jump right into our first question relating to a publication that you both co-authored on ethical considerations in global surgery. In that paper, you stated, as the arena of global surgery continues to mature, it must also become self-reflective. Can you share some of your reflections over kind of the course of your career and involvement with global surgery work? We can start with you, Dr. Saleh. Sure, of course. You know, thank you for the question. And and it's, you know, the field of global surgery has really been experiencing quite the renaissance since uh, the Lancet publication that came out in 2015, urging the the world and the global health community to look at the burden of disease, the gap in terms of access to surgical care for most of the world with 5 billion people uh, not having access to adequate surgical or anesthetic care, um, as well as the, the reality is that 260 million surgeries are needed yearly around the world to meet the gap. So that whole idea and um, kind of, you know, endorsement of that field has led to more and more people being one aware of it and interested in it. Before that, I think the field of international surgery or global surgery was primarily limited to you know, people who are involved in um, mission trips or faith-based organizations or, or a short-term surgical deployment or some people who go and spend their lives in low-income context and, and live there and provide surgical care. But as the, over the past few decades, there's been an, an increased awareness that, that we need to focus more on, on capacity building, the sustainability of this, and the, the fact that the, with a deficit that big, how do we go about meeting those needs? That you, so, so what we were trying to to bring um, some light to is that the field is at a bit of a inflection point with a lot of interest, a lot of resources going into it, and probably um, um, an increase in the number of people that are going to start to dedicate a significant portion of their time, their resources, and their lives to that field, and and that's when, um, that's when I think. Um, fields need to really reflect so that we don't face similar problems to what happened, for example, with the HIV um, epidemic, where there was a huge need, people started to understand, but then there was also some unethical practices that came out of that, some experimentation on people in low-resource settings or people in slums, um, uh, 
development of um, you know um, power dynamics that were big issues for for the field of HIV that continued for decades after um, and it took and continued to be a problem but has taken a lot of like uh, investment and time and and thinking to try to dig ourselves out of those ethical pitfalls and so we think and we believe that the, the field of global surgery is, is at one of those inflection points as well. And that if we're not quite deliberate and thoughtful about how to, to um, see and, and um, be cognizant of the pitfalls that this field can ex- experience, that we might end up causing more harm than, than good. And definitely, just because there is an increased appetite for something, an increased awareness, increased involvement, doesn't mean that good intentions are going to necessarily mean to good outcomes and to, importantly, to empowerment of the people that actually need it and to uh, patients getting better care. So I think that's that's the main, uh, I think, thought and belief that we had that helped us delve into this problem and to start to facilitate this a global dialogue that we've been having over the past few years and to try to develop the ethics framework in global surgery. Thank you. I love what you said about good intentions and that doesn't obviate the need for us to be self-critical and make sure that we're not repeating the same mistakes. Dr. Guilfoyle, what are your thoughts? What are your reflections? I would just echo a lot of what Dr. Sally said. Obviously, we have a lot of the same thoughts in this arena because we've spent a lot of time together thinking about it and just just kind of to add a couple of other things that I kind of have come across is that in general I think our society as it matures becomes a bit more self-reflective but uh, even our language around some of these groups that were traditionally marginalized we're not we're not where we necessarily need to be, but I think that we're way leaps and bounds ahead now than when you reflect, say, even in, you know, the, the 1970s or, you know, even if you watch television from then, you're like, wow, that dialogue would not fly today. So I think that we are constantly becoming a little more socially aware and that is as our society matures and this is similar in in surgery as well it's it kind of reflected in all things and we have a long-standing history like since you know the first and second world war with the red cross and um assisting people medically whether it was from times of war or natural disaster or just low-income countries and there was i mean this was lauded because I think there's somewhere in our human nature of having this altruistic tendencies and wanting to help others. And it comes from a place of sincerity, but as decades of that had gone on, it started, you know, there were, as, as kind of Dr. Sally said before, like pitfalls that were starting to be identified with it. Um, And sometimes not just pitfalls, like full, full out, like, ethical problems from it. And it's just taken us a while to kind of mature to the point where we've reflected on our actions and then decided, okay, that maybe wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I'm in, I'm a pediatric surgeon and often in peds, we say, well, if you start a new technique, it takes 20 years to know whether it worked. 
because you you do something in a childhood and sometimes they have to you know age to adulthood to know say in a cleft lip repair if that actually will pers persist and be a good repair into adulthood and there's a there's a similar thing that might happen in something like global surgery where you have an action but you might not see immediately the effects of that and so i think as we become a little more self-reflective and we in you know include like quality improvement and these kind of things into all points of medicine it will naturally help global surgery and the endeavors that we choose to be part of all right well that was great diving kind of into the specifics of the research that you both have done on ethical framework and ethical domains. In that same paper that I quoted earlier, you identified four major ethical domains in the global surgery literature. What are those domains and are certain ones overrepresented compared to others? Yeah, I can start and talk a little bit about that. So the, the process that we undertook to, to develop the framework was kind of in a stepwise fashion. First, we looked at the literature that the at least the surgical or the global surgical literature and what it talked about in terms of ethical issues. And there were four main areas that we identified. The first was clinical care and delivery. The next one was education and training and certification of trainees. The third one was uh, research, monitoring and evaluation. And the last one was partnerships and sustainability. And so the vast majority of the papers that we, we found in our scoping review were talked about the problems or the challenges of clinical care. And then that was the most represented area in all the literature, followed by education and then some research. And then the least represented was partnerships and sustainability. And that, that reflects, I think, the, the trend of how global surgery has been going, that it primarily has been the provision of clinical care, people going over and doing surgeries or taking a team and helping uh, you know, train somebody on the ground in that particular technique. So a lot of it was around either the actual delivery of care or training using clinical care as a way to teach. So that was kind of the first aspect of what we did. And then because we thought that a scoping review was the first step, we used that to help us facilitate and launch this global dialogue. And so after that, we announced this project or this initiative at the College of Surgeons of East Central and South Africa at the meeting in 2018 in, in Kigali in Rwanda and invited people to come and participate in that discussion for the next year, culminating in an in-person conference that we were hosting in Edmonton, Alberta. And so we used that next year to have a series of facilitated webinars and online discussions to really start to ask questions around, you know, first using cases and then starting to dive deeper and deeper into the, the nitty gritty of these challenges. And those four domains that we identified from the scoping review were kept coming up over and over again, but there were others too that came up and including, you know, the impact on the environment or the generation of waste and the environmental impact of that or, or traveling and the environmental and, and carbon footprint from that, as well as the economy of and the donation of different supplies. So the economy as in what, what are we looking at in terms of when people go and 
provide care in a particular country and they bring their own team and how that might impact the local workflow, the ability for people to do care, the trust in the local healthcare system that after that, maybe nobody wants to come to the local surgeons or the local anesthetists or the local obstetricians, as well as the aspects of bringing and, and donating equipment and how that might be seen as a well-intended measure, but it doesn't necessarily have the longevity or doesn't have the support locally that can help sustain that. So if, if you send over an anesthetic machine, but it's the wrong voltage or it's the wrong type of equipment or doesn't have the right anesthetic gas that they use in that particular resource-limited setting, then all that is just detrimental. Now the hospital has to deal with those machines and get rid of them. And that primarily is still very much looking at it from a global north to a global south perspective. And so the next aspect was to start to flip that thing around and to look at those domains from the local aspect um, and both dealing with their own ecosystem as well as with asking for people to come and, and visit them and the power differentials and the power dynamics. So it slowly started to dawn on us that there were probably six main domains, but there, were, there was a hierarchy of how these domains had to be looked at in terms of who the, the primary stakeholder or the beneficiary, as in the typical thinking behind the biomedical ethics model is usually looking at those four, the aspects of uh, do no harm or non-maleficence, the beneficence, the justice aspects, and um, the the right or the, of, or the autonomy of the patient. But the reality is that when it comes to global surgery, what was clear is that it wasn't just relationships between physicians and their patients. It was relationships between physicians and physicians, institutions and institutions, supply chain management, logistical aspects, environmental aspects. So pure biomedical ethics was just insufficient. And so so that's why the it became from, and I know I've gone a lot deeper than maybe the, the question, but, but it, it's the domains that we identified in a scoping review helped start the conversation. The webinars then gave it a lot more depth and, and complexity. And then we had everybody, both in person and virtually, who attended the conference here in Edmonton, join a pre-conference meeting where we duked it out and hashed out what a draft framework would look like. And then during the whole conference that everybody was here, we tried to refine that, looking at people's presentations and having live sessions of discuss, discussing contentious and difficult topics. And so so the framework evolved over that year and a half. And then we started a validation process that Dr. Guilfoyle can speak a lot more to uh, in different parts of the world. But that whole process uh, was really stemming from that initial domain identification that most of the ethics and most of the discussions and most of the work was done around clinical care, but that the complexities of sur providing surgical care, let alone in your own institution, um, you know, that means like in your own institution, uh, let alone in, in a different country, in a different culture, in a different language, uh, provides so many other dimensions of ethics and pitfalls and challenges that, um, that needed a much more nuanced and developed understanding and that led us to develop that whole process and framework that we're now writing up for publication. All right, that was an excellent overview. Dr. Guilfoyle, I know some part of your master's work was uh, 
relating to this ethical framework and validating it. Can you talk about um, what findings were were there, what themes were identified, and kind of where that is currently? Yeah, so as uh, Dr. Saleh said, um, you know, through a series of like initiatives, the culmination came into this framework. And um, there were the themes or domains that we talked about, which ultimately started from that um, literature, scoping literature review, which really only identified four. But then in that deeper dive, we came up with the additional two, which was kind of economy and donations and environment. And so these were the six themes, but they needed to be governed by principles. And the principles um, that we had kind of talked about uh, were, were both in webinars with, with actual clinicians, but also with ethicists and kind of experts in the field. And um, we had kind of honed down six or five main principles, which were respect, accountability, justice, honesty, and compassion. And so these were supposed to be your our mindset in terms of how we look at the domains and how we conduct ourselves in partnerships and collaborations. And so, you know, throughout our webinars that we'd had and our workshops, there was a lot of frank discussion and we, we kind of understood a lot of people's frustrations or what kind of ethical dilemmas they had kind of found themselves in, whether they were from high income countries or low income countries. In the spirit of trying to avoid that global north perspective uh, to the global south, we needed as, you know, as much as we tried to include all corners of the world in our webinar, and we would have webinars at two different time periods to allow for uh, people from all over to, to attend. Uh, it was still, it was still us, you know, who, who were hosting it. And, um, as much as we thought we had tried to capture, you know, a, a balanced opinion, it was important to externally validate it. And so this was done, uh, basically at the following COSEXA meeting that was hosted in Kampala, Uganda. That was a majority of our, our respondents. Uh, we did have some, I did send out emails and um, try to, to do uh, the validation uh, to capture other, other you know, clinicians, but the, the majority were just in-person attendees. And it's, through the external validation, it was basically a, a Likert scale with 16 questions where um, we, we combine the themes with the principles and to see what type of concordance there was um, from people specifically of low-income countries that had first-hand knowledge or experience working with collaborations from high-income countries. And so you're excluded if you, if you didn't meet that criteria. And essentially there was just basically a hundred percent concordance that they felt like an ethical framework needed to be in place. And they, there was, really high concordance in, in how, in their agreement in terms of what we had come up with. So that was, you know, I guess like just confirming that we'd hopefully captured 
people's the the global feeling on this for the most part i mean i must like this has only been validated in basically an Eastern Africa setting. So it would have to be continue to be validated in other parts of the world um, because culture and context is different. Um, and the things that really came out of it was that the number one principle that needed to guide was respect and then followed by accountability and justice. And, you know, I don't know that anything was shocking to us or particularly surprising, but there were you know, room for basically testimonial and qualitative data in it. And, and some of that was not surprising, but like confirming. And it's very different to read a number and a statistic that, that kind of validates what you, you think. Um, and it's quite another to see words written down. It's just so much more personal and really highlights the reason that we're doing this. And so some of, you know, the things that would have been highlighted were, you know, teams using the camp to collect specimens from patients that aren't authorized or quite a lot of responses based on research and feeling that, um, you know, publications were generated from their country, but there were no collaboration of locals or there was never true skill transfer. People came with their own teams and they were this isolated unit and they really couldn't benefit from it. And when they made suggestions uh, in terms of uh, maybe how to manage something surgically, there was this uh, know-it-all quote unquote attitude from the high income team. And it was just kind of brushed aside as, you know, non-evidence-based medicine and completely disregarded. So, you know, some of those, like I said, the, the qualitative discussion that came out of it, um, you know, is I think informative for, for those readers from high income countries to know that this is, this is sometimes how things are perceived and it's real. Um, and so it was, like I said, not, not necessarily surprising considering all the, the kind of lead up work that we've done, but, but certainly just, I guess, confirming. Right. And so if you were to apply this framework to the two ends of the spectrum that we think about when it comes to global surgery work, um, the short-term surgical trips and the long-term partnerships and collaborations, are there ethical challenges that are unique to kind of those ends of the spectrum? Yeah. I mean, the, the short-term surgical trips there's a lot more, um, you know, literature out there regarding short-term surgical missions and some of the pitfalls, like it's more known in the literature and talked about. And that's probably just because there's a longer history of it. Um, it's easy enough to do a short-term surgical trip. You know, you just get yourself and a bunch of people organized for, for a week or two, you know, you fly out to X country and uh, you come back and you're kind of done. I mean, that's in the most, in its kind of least sustainable form, I would say. And so there's obvious pitfalls to that, which I think many people that are kind of in this field would identify. And that would be, you know, the, the poor skill transfer, um, there's no sustainability, a lack of follow-up for patients. There's evidence to show that surgeons that are operating in other countries have a higher complication rate. 
you know, certainly I've been involved in my younger years as a resident in a cleft lip and palate mission. And I saw some, some concerns with that specifically, you know, no allied healthcare follow-up for say speech. And I would say something similar would probably happen in burns where there's no physiotherapy afterwards. And these adjuvant treatments um, and allied healthcare are a huge portion of, of your actual outcome. So even if you had no complication with the initial surgery, it's just the first hurdle in terms of getting an actually good outcome. Uh, so those are some of the, the challenges around short-term surgical trips. And, and I think there's ways to incorporate it and make it a bit more sustainable. And there's, you know, some examples of where this has actually turned into, you know, the ability to, to create a hospital out of what started as short-term surgical missions in, in India with cleft lip and palate, for instance. So there, there are some models where that seem to work. The, in terms of ethical considerations for long-term partnerships and collaborations, I mean, ultimately the goal I think most people would be striving for is to uh, create a sustainable project. And, you know, I was involved in a, in a paper where we looked at, well, what was the, what are the characteristics of people that identify themselves as, as being successful having successful academic partnerships. And, you know, they all talked about sustainability as being uh, like a number of number one importance, but very few of them had actually outlined uh, an exit strategy. Uh, So this is a definite pitfall where they realized a true sustainable project you don't need to be part of at say 10 years out. But if you haven't baked that exit strategy in from day one, then it's going to be hard to extricate yourself. And the, the big issue in extricating yourself is um, one, maybe you haven't planned it, but the other is financial in nature. And the, if you don't have buy-in from the host community and uh, there's all of the financial burden is from the high income country, it can be very difficult to try to hand over that baton completely um, because of financial issues. And then um, the program basically collapses. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's some similar things for sure, but some of the, I guess, unique things to the long-term perspective is, is some of those financial considerations and, and how do you actually make something sustainable? It's actually a lot harder um, than it than it seems and it in at least in this paper that we wrote it seems like you need to commit at least 10 years to really get anything meaningful you know uh, and and something that is likely to persist in the future thanks for that and dr Sally, can you comment on kind of the limitations and the ethical concerns that can come with the long-term approach from the lens of the systems building that you do yeah, no, thank you for that. It's, um, you know, like Dr. Guilfoyle said, the, the short-term surgical ones, it's it's more clear. But the long-term ones, it's hard to really discern, um, like, the intentions of building a sustainable program. Uh, like, 
it has to first, like Dr. Gilfoyle said, you need to have a needs assessment and to really understand what the root cause that you're trying to to um, to address is. And so it has to be first driven by the local participants and the local champions. And a lot of the time we identify a problem and think we have a good solution for it and then try to make our needs assessment fit that. And so there is... Uh, and it's hard to to be aware enough of a problem to be able to talk about it to help you know either receive a needs assessment or a lot of the time the people who are expressing a need are expressing a very superficial aspect of the need but haven't had the time or the expertise on uh, you know to be able to dig deep into what the root cause of a problem is and so so that's on the needs analysis and and the root cause piece and there and so the motivations around like okay i have a solution that i want to implement and so then that ends up being like sure you might end up designing and developing partnerships and all that but but even from the start from the intention uh, you can start to run into problems and ethical pitfalls because we can impose um, and I'm talking about it because it's easier to understand global north to global south. And we can talk, and I'll talk a little bit, maybe a little bit later about the challenges of global south to global north ethics. But um, but because I have, let's say, an idea or I've identified a need and I bring it up to a community or a hospital or university, there there is an inherent power differential. And potentially associated resources or associated uh, prestige that might come. So if I go to a hospital um, director or CEO of a hospital, this person might want to have the benefit of connecting to somebody from Canada or from the United States. And he might also or she might also want some financial benefits or to travel back and forth and, and to or bring people in from, from those countries. And so, so immediately you can start to see where the power differential leads to some um, skewing of what the need is and whether we're driving um, the need or whether the need was actually a problem that they're willing to, uh, that the low resource environment is willing to um, um, express, identify, champion, and then solve. And so to me, that's one of the, initial challenges that you face then when you go about um, implementing that having um, some of the other aspects of you know the the legacy that we live in is that there's an expectation that high income settings are going to support these programs with donations or with grant funding and ultimately that immediately even if it's a an attempt at having a, a, a system level intervention that won't work because it boils it down to externally funded uh, programs. So we developed a trauma registry and implemented it as part of a collaboration with the hospital in Uganda and ran it for about three years using both grant funding as well as our core funding to, to pay for it. And then it came down to, okay, well, we've collected a lot of data that was useful for the hospital. The hospital then um, was like, okay, um, can you guys just continue doing that? We enjoy having that data. We're like, okay, well, that's, but there has to be a transition. So 
we hadn't properly defined the endpoint of the partnership. And, and so we started to get into this difficult situation where the hospital, we might have talked about it in, in like, okay, once we get to a certain volume of uh, patients or data, then that will be transitioned to the hospital. But, but I wasn't in clear terms because it was still nebulous. And if you say, okay, well, you can't really get into a contractual agreement when you're doing this kind of work. And so then it leads to failure of these projects. And so for, for us, for example, for that trauma registry piece, we started to look at it, okay, well, how do we align or how do we really understand the need? So the ethical pitfalls that, that we were facing was that we don't want this project to fail, but we don't want to be the ones funding it in perpetuity. The hospital wanted this data because it's important, but they didn't have the resources. And if we uh, tie their hands and say, you have to do that, otherwise we'll never work with you again, then we're imposing undue pressure. And it's quite unethical to do that because there is, again, that inherent power dynamic. And so we looked at what are what are the aligned um, interests here? And so the hospital could document or could show that they see... Um, approximately 20,000 patients a year. But we knew and they knew that they saw about 30,000 patients. But because of their bad um, documentation and IT systems, they couldn't make a good enough case that they are actually seeing 30,000 patients. And therefore, we're not getting funding from the Ministry of Health for 30,000 patients. They were only getting it for 20,000. So we said, well, why don't you guys then combine the trauma registry with patient registration system since 50% of your patients are trauma patients. And that way you could demonstrate to the hospital um, authority as well as to the, the Ministry of Health that you're actually seeing more than you're getting funded for. And the way for you to do that is that you need to take ownership of this project and to staff it. And so the hospital, to their credit, staffed the the emergency department, and they took on patient registration, both uh, on paper as well as electronically, and started to fund those salaries to be able to continue this. So just as an example of some of the, the challenges of doing these is that you're one in it for the long haul. The easiest thing to do would be to just, okay, well, I'm going to go and take out an appendix or fix a hernia. But now when you're saying, okay, well, we're going to create a sustainable system you're not solving only the, the clinical problem that they're facing or the research problem or the education problem, but sustainability means that you're actually committing to looking with your partner and helping with understanding the root cause by, by really looking at it to understand where the need is coming from, developing a pathway towards an endpoint, and then creating the financial, social, and a cultural um, sustainable endpoints that will allow you to leave and this project not to be yet another thing that goes in the development graveyard. And the and I'll add like another layer of complexity is that then the unintended, but I mean maybe maybe it is intended, but we then in high income settings and in academic settings can come and write about it and get academic promotions or we get publications or we get master's degrees and everything and the projects often fail that we write about so we have an inherent benefit that a lot of so so we get involved in these 
big complex problems and now increasingly nobody can really write a publication and say I, I went to Mexico for a week and operated on 10 people and came back and I'm going to write a publication. Now it's more on the system level or the sustainability aspects of it or the longer uh, term research projects. But inherently we're biased because we get something out of it. We get the satisfaction, we get the academic advancement, we get the uh, grants, and we get uh, often the relationships from, from that that then further our careers, further our personal gratification and everything. So so it's a very imperfect system. And, and unless we really recognize that, okay, I'm going to develop this project, it's going to um, mean sharing resources. It's going to mean that we have a clear understanding of of who the um, publications, um, like what publications we're going to attempt to do, or whatever ways we're going to disseminate this, and who's going to be authoring them. And um, and then it comes to that honoring that because people in low income contexts often are busy and under resourced or don't have the skill set to to write manuscripts, and so then. That's where sometimes the ethics goes both ways. Then what are the responsibilities of people in the global south to the global north? Like, can somebody fairly put their name as a first author if they haven't done the majority of the work? Or is it fair to then say, well, because they come from a lower resource setting, that this is a way to uplift them, to get them up to a point that they can then develop this themselves? So there are there's a lot of complexity here. Um, to to each one of those points that that like anything in ethics there are no solutions but this is just to give a framework for how to think about those complexities and how to have an approach most importantly to just even bring them up to discuss and to outline and to caution us that i think the moment we could present this idea in a in a articulate enough manner people who were always saying, well, I do short-term surgical missions because anything is better than nothing, then suddenly now could reflect on that. And then it was easier for us to have a more developed discussion around that and say, okay, well, I'm not here to penalize you. I'm not here to judge in any way, but I'm just saying that there are inherent ethical pitfalls to everything that we all do. There's no clear solution or clear way that's superior, but there are things that have more ethical um, pitfalls than others. And our job is to minimize those ethical pitfalls, or at the very least to educate ourselves on them enough that we can um, be as um, cautious and that it's okay to take, that something takes five to 10 years if it succeeds and be, and causes the least amount of harm and maybe some good rather than doing 10 things that none of them will mean anything, but it means 10 landmark publications and I get to be a professor and get to travel and, and show off all these all this work, but nothing has really changed. So that that is I think some sometimes one of the most difficult things to talk about in a field. And that's why we're saying that the field is at this inflection point. And if we don't have these conversations now, the cat's gonna be out of the bag and then we're gonna be 20 years from now when we see the impact or the negative impacts from this, we'll be like, well, I guess we should have done that. Well, no, we're trying this. We're already at the point of, I guess we should have done that. Let's reflect on it more and try to be more deliberate in how we take that on. 
This has been part one of our conversation with Dr. Saleh and Dr. Guilfoyle on the ethics of global surgery. Join us on the next episode for part two. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.